Welcome to the Proclaim Podcast, where we sit down with missionary disciples and talk all things around sharing Jesus with others. Our hosts are Brett Powell, Heather Kim, Jason Jensen, Eric Chow, and Amber Zolp. Bishop, there's so many things about your testimony that I feel like we could talk about for many, many hours because it's a beautiful example of some, it's quite methodical actually, like just your process of beginning to ask questions coming from no faith at all, beginning to ask questions and seeking the truth, you know, but for so many people, we just find ourselves, we, we grew up Catholic or we grew up in a Christian home and we just sort of adopted what has, what was given to us from our parents. And so, um, we, many of us, I don't think, take time to ask the questions. And especially the one that stood out to me was, if this is really true, then that changes everything. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just wondered if we could talk about that for a minute. Like, what should it change in our life? Like, if we really pause to ask the question, like, if Jesus really is who he says he is, he really is present in the Eucharist, he really did come to save me and set me free, what should that mean for me? You know, as a as a disciple, what does that mean if we call ourselves disciples? Well, for me, it was a change in worldview. Uh, why am I here at all? Uh, what's the purpose and point of my life? Um, does anything really have any meaning or do we just turn into dust and blow away? Uh, for me, it meant absolutely everything. I mean, to the, dis- the distinction between prote- perhaps having an eternal life waiting for me of infinite joy in the majesty of an eternally beautiful, magnificent God that is enrapturing us forever, as opposed to, you know, some chemicals that break down and that's the end of it. It makes a big difference, (laughs) you know? Uh, So, yeah, why are we here? Uh, And that, that I think, informs everything in our life. It it informs uh, what we do with our lives, the way we think about the world, the way we relate to other people. Uh, is marriage just a convenient contract or is this a sacred encounter with a living God? Um, what is the place of God in my life? What is the place of worship in my life? What is the place of charity and care and concern for others in my life? Um, how should society treat other people? How should society treat the poor? Um, uh, to me, it affects everything. It makes all the difference in the world. If there is no God, as Dostoevsky says, like, why, why should I bother? Why should I care about morality? Why should I care about doing the right thing if there is no right and wrong? Um, so, yeah, I mean, for someone having the experience that I did, going from having a vague notion that maybe there's something out there to having a, a concrete understanding of who God is and what he wants to accomplish in the world, I mean, that gave my life meaning and purpose. It gave, it gave my life a, a direction. I'm not just drifting around trying to have fun. I, I'm not, I have a mission. I got a purpose. And uh, wow, there's so many. And, and in my experience, in a generation now that we're facing where people are less religious, they're clinging on to things and on to ideology precisely because th- I think deep down they know their life is supposed to matter. Their life is supposed to mean something. They're supposed to bring something to the equation and make a difference. Unfortunately, they're just shooting too low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're shooting for human ideologies that come and that go. And some of them have you know, been tried and failed numerous, numerous times. Um, understanding who God is, understanding his his love and his reaching out to us, he's grabbing us. I mean, that is captivating. 
and it changes everything. And it sets you on a path that really does um, matter, you know, Um, whether I live uh, or I mean, whether I live a long life or a short life, whether I succeed or fail in business or in all of these other things that go on in my life, whether I'm sick or healthy, it really doesn't make any difference. If I know who God is and I know what he's working out through my life and in my life, my life has meaning and purpose and beauty and a certain majesty as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. I can't help but think of that quote by Pope Benedict that we've heard you know, quite often, but that uh, Christianity isn't just an idea or like an ethical way of living or a choice, but it really is an encounter with the person, yeah. the person of Jesus. And that's where you move beyond, which I think is so compelling about your story is that it's not that that doesn't matter. You know, it does matter that we understand intellectually, you know, the history and what the church teaches and moral obligation and all of those things. But, but that it moved to a place of encounter with the person of Jesus. And, um, I just wonder, like, if you could just share with us, what does that look like day to day? Because it isn't just a one-time encounter. I know, I know that for you. I know that for me. Um, what does that look like? Day it's to meant day? to be a daily encounter. Yeah. But I think G.K. Chesterton said it so beautifully. Um, for those who don't know him, he was a great convert to the faith in the, uh, I think, it was 1920s. A great literary figure. But he said, really, when you look at it, and I'm paraphrasing here, our faith is a love story. It's a, it's a romance. This is a God who is madly in love with us and is reaching out to us in a fallen world, which we sometimes forget, um, and and trying to be in relationship, offering his love to us, offering his person to us, offering his presence to us. And the whole life of faith is a response to that. And as you say, we often, or at least many of us, have had a moment we can point to where we say, that was a watershed. That was the mm-hmm. aha moment mm-hmm. when it made sense and my life went from being black and white to technicolor, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but it's it's an encounter that we have to have over and over and over again. So uh, I stress all the time in my own preaching and ministry, you know, time alone with Jesus, with your scriptures open on your lap in front of you is a must. You know, speaking to him from the heart, from a place of authenticity about our fears, our struggles, our hopes, our joys, our insecurities, everything that is going on in our lives, the people who are affecting us and the people we hope to affect, speaking from the heart to this living God because he hears, because he's present, because there is never one of those prayers that falls on deaf ears. Now, he knows what we don't know. He sees what we can't see. And he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. So just like any good parent with their child, sometimes the answer is no or not yet. Um, but he's there. He's, he's active. I think our whole life is meant to be an encounter with the Lord if we understand it right. In our personal prayer, in the sacraments, they're meant to be encounters with the living God. The highest and most powerful, of course, is through the Eucharistic sacrifice, where we literally are uniting our we're offering the Father the perfect gift in an unbloody way of Jesus to the Father and ourselves along with him. But even our social life, what you do to the least of mine, you do to me, you know. Um, you had mentioned Father Bob Bedard's name. And even just hearing the name, I just smile. Yeah. Thinking about Father Bob and all that he's been for so many people and, you know, founding the Companions of the Cross. But one of my most fond memories of his ministry is when he was teaching high school. And I don't know if this is how you will remember it, but this is how I remember it. But he would 
you know, basically challenge the kids. It's like, look, if, if you don't, if you don't like, if you believe, but you don't really have a relationship, just stop and say, Lord, I want to believe, but I need you to show me. And he, he would always say that is a prayer that he loves to answer. Like he wants to come and come into your life. He wants you to encounter him in a real way. And that's been my experience and so many people, your experience, everybody's experience is that initial, you know, encounter. And Father Bob, who is the founder of the Companions of the Cross, so you're a Companion of the Cross, although you're a bishop now. Uh, you have two bishops from the order, Bishop Christian and you. Um, what would Father Bob say about the essence of that encounter and why it's so important? I think what he handed on to us and one of the great gifts he gave to the church mm-hmm. in his own day was he understood in such a dramatic fashion that the Lord is, is uh, as I said earlier, not a buried prophet from 20 centuries ago. He is alive, he has risen from the dead, and he's on the move in our time. He's, he's got plans. He, he, he wants to act in our lives. He wants to do things. He can be known in a deeply intimate and personal way. You know, of course we have to know him within the church. This is not a me and Jesus theology that he was, he was preaching. Of course we have to understand him within all of that ecclesiology, with that whole, the gift of the whole church. We, we believe in him in the church and through the sacraments, we encounter him, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, we can. We can know him. We can have a, a life-changing encounter with him. Not something that is um, theoretical, but something that touches us as human beings. Uh, he believed passionately in something that he, we read from um, Cardinal Ratzinger. Conversion is not merely a matter of the mind, of assenting to intellectual truths. Conversion involves the whole person. It involves the mind. It involves the heart, the will, and it involves the emotion. It involves the whole person. And uh, Father Bob, he really believed that without the moment's hesitation that if you say, if you really want to know and if you're sincere and you're willing to pursue, open your heart, ask the question, and he'll answer. He'll meet you in that place. And uh, I think it was one of the reasons he was such a powerful uh, evangelist, such a powerful preacher, teacher, you know. He he just had utter confidence Jesus was going to answer that prayer. I can even as you're describing, I can see his cheeky smile. <laughs> it's like he'll show up. He'll show you. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. One of the um, one of the lies that the enemy, you know, told in the garden, really, which I think a lot of us still struggle, and he's still speaking into our lives, is that God is holding out on us. That he really doesn't deeply care for us. That some somehow, you know, he's uh, yeah keeping something back from us. And sometimes that will translate for us into like God is very distant from us. But what you're talking about is no, God is here and He is real and He is on the move. And and the stories in the Bible aren't just from two thousand years ago, but He is alive and well. And so I would just love to hear from you. How do you see the Holy Spirit moving in the world today? And how do you see that God is on the move in our world? Because I think for many of us, we are so bombarded with negativity and you're hearing real time all of the tragedies that are happening around the world. And we're not really hearing enough of how is God moving? Because there is so many reasons to have hope. There has never been a time, a place, or a moment in history that the Holy Spirit has not been drawing hearts, drawing minds, 
um, compelling, well, not compelling belief, but uh, helping us to understand who Jesus is. What is Jesus doing? He's doing the same thing he did uh, from the moment uh, he rose into the Father's presence and sent the Holy Spirit upon us. He is reconciling the world to the Father, one person at a time, through the activity of the Holy Spirit and in his holy church. He's always been doing it. He always will be doing it. I think one of the things that we forget, and it's one of my hobby horses, if you will. Uh, if you've ever heard me speak in public, it's something I'm constantly harping on. We forget the biblical worldview. God revealed to us, this is a fallen world, and it is under the dominion of the evil one. St. Paul calls the prince of this air. Jesus calls the prince of this world. So it is a fallen situation we find ourselves in. And the gospel story is the story of the kingdom of God invading this fallen kingdom and taking it back one step at a time. The church is the, um, is the beachhead, if you will, of the kingdom of God in this world. And so there will always be light and darkness. There will always be clouds and scandals and schisms and heresies. And yet in the midst of them, we see God raising up saints and we see theologians piercing darkness of ignorance and we see truth illuminating. We see um, movements of social justice. We see all of these amazing things where the kingdom is taking root in this world. So it's a struggle. It's back and forth. Uh, so many of the people that are focused on the negative forget that there was negative at the time of St. Francis of Assisi. And I mean, you point out any great saint in the history of the church and you will find that they were facing storms. They were facing problems. Um, the analogy that I like to use is when you have two weather systems collide into each other, a high pressure system and a low pressure system, what do you get? You get storms. And the greater... Uh, the greater the difference in the pressure, the greater the storms. That's the history of the Catholic Church. That's the history of salvation history. There's been storms from day one because the kingdom of God is slamming into this fallen world. And we see both. We see darkness and struggle and error and sin, as I said, and we see luminous brilliance from the saints, from the teaching of Mother Church, the infallible teaching of Mother Church. We see the relics and the beauty of the liturgies. And I mean, I, does that make any sense? <laughs> and I do see the Holy Spirit in very much moving in our time. Um, if you look carefully at church history, you will see that there have been great releases of the Holy Spirit before major evangelical movements in the history of the Catholic Church, 5th century, 10, 11th century, on and on. Um, and we're seeing that now. And this is not something which is a private opinion of Bishop Scott McKegg. This is something that has come from the highest offices of the church repeatedly. You know, Pope Paul VI talked about this great release of this, of this um, the, the charisms in the church, this renewal of this dynamism of the Holy Spirit, this current of grace that has been released in the church as a, as a hope for the church in our time. You know, John Paul II called it a new Pentecost to go with a new evangelization. Um, uh, and Pope Francis, of course, well, Pope Benedict as well, probably spoke uh, most strongly, that might surprise some people, about this being the answer to the prayer of John Twenty-Third at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council for a new Pentecost, and enough of Pope Francis as well. So I, I do think we live in a graced period of time. Mm -hmm. we, we're living at the end of a... Um, 
of Christendom. Christendom is dead. Christendom is gone. It's in the rearview mirror. Uh, Christian society as such. And we've, we've left it in the past. And so we are now at the, at the very forefront of a new missionary age. We're beginning again, if you will. Uh, I've often said that the pastoral realities we face now are closer to those of the early 4th century than those of the early 20th century. And so uh, we have to adapt our thinking, our methodology, our way of evangelizing. We have to look again at what worked (laughs) when we were facing a hostile pagan world uh, many centuries ago. And we've got to retool ourselves for the realities we face. You know, uh, the, the analogy I like to use is Jesus in his earthly ministry walked from place to place. A lot of time while he was delivering the same message about the kingdom of God, he also met the needs of the time and place. Here he healed someone. Here he gave a particular uh, a parable. Here he used a different parable. So he was meeting the needs as he traveled through. I believe he's doing the same thing as we travel through salvation history. Each era has its own particular needs. Each era has its own particular challenges. And uh, he speaks into the church what we need to do. We're a big church, so it takes a long time for us to sometimes move. But when you get moving and you get momentum, boy, try and slow her down, you know. And that's where I see ourselves right now. This is what the Lord is doing in the church. He's retooling us to face a new missionary age with new realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very exciting, actually, you know, like we can focus on certain things more than others, I think, especially right now in this tumultuous time in the church. Um, But the things that don't change are that God is still on the throne and he is still sovereign. And that even though there's this clashing of light and dark, that he has already won. And we just need to come into, you know, like submit our lives under his authority so that we can be moved by the power of his spirit. And you've seen that in many movements in the church that, that you've been a part of. And, um, and there's things that are that are happening, and there's things that that work in the new evangelization. And so I'd love to transition mm. into that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things, um, as you were talking about how important it is to be responding to the Spirit, and that God is raising up saints at all all times throughout the history, uh, it, it reminded me of um, you know Thomas Dubay, Fire Within. You remember mm. that? So the very first chapter, it's like he, that's his economy, God's economy. That's what he does. He raises up saints for the time, and one of the things I think about as saints is saints are those people who like Jesus hear what the father is saying and say that see what the father is doing and do that you know Mother Teresa is a great saint but she was just manifesting what the the father's heart for the poor that's really all it is that's the strategy if you will and you have seen that in many of the movements and you've been commissioned by Ontario bishops even to get very specific with what you kind of see happening and how the spirit is moving. So maybe you can take us into some of the quote unquote research, which is really just confirming what the spirit is doing in the church today. Sure. Well, there's a few things you've touched on. Um, Maybe I'll start with uh, what is perhaps most passionate in my own heart is that real evangelization is not ultimately about techniques. We have to learn techniques. Uh, we have to do the work. We have to study. We've got to be prepared for evangelical apologetics and all of that. Absolutely. But we're in trouble if we don't remember, first and foremost, that this project of evangelization began in the heart of God. And it belongs to God. This is His mission in which we have a small part to play. 
This is his mission. You know, he's the one who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's the one who so loves the world that he sent his only son that we might have life, you know? Uh, and so if we're going to evangelize and be part of the, the new missionary age, we need first and foremost to get in contact with the heart of God. We need to be in a place where we are daily receiving that fire, that love. Um, we've, we face many challenges, and without God's love animating everything that we do, you will quickly go discouraged and give up and walk away or settle or get into maintenance mode, just manage things, you know. But that's not the heart of God. Uh, you know, God's heart is wild. God's heart is is filled. He wants desperately for every single person who has ever come into this world to know him, to know how much he loves them. There is a, a story from St. Catherine of Siena. She would fall into ecstasy and pray with her arms outstretched in ecstasy. And again, I don't have the direct quote, but so I'm paraphrasing, but the women around her were writing it down. She was actually a laywoman, but she brought belonged to a, kind of a third order a Dominican movement. And they were writing down what she was praying as she was in this moan of ecstasy. And she cries out, you know, Lord, you have no need of me whatsoever, but you treat me like you can't live without me. Mm. She said, you are like an, an inebriated lover. Anybody who's involved in the mission of the church has got to start there, in my humble opinion. We've got to be captured by the love of God because he can't do anything other than love. And so we too need to be permeated by that and be manifesting that in our lives. People know when you're talking to them for the wrong reasons, mm -hmm. when you're just trying to rack up a number, you know, how many I evangelized or, or uh, you're working out of your own insecurity. I need you to believe what I believe because I'm insecure. People see through it, but genuine love moves hearts. And You're going to go on a roll and I want you to, <laughs> but we got to pause there because when we sort of began to think about what proclaim as a movement could be in the diocese and all that, we were thinking, you know, people will be afraid to enter into this because I don't know what to say. I don't have a theology degree. You know, I don't know my catechism. What if somebody asks me something that, you know, I don't have an answer to, then I'm just going to be a stumbling block for them. But we just kept coming back to the heart of it, which is, loving people and there's a particular place I think and I, I have said numerous times the missionary dimension of the home has never been more important than it is now because so much of the pain and suffering that people are carrying and the baggage and the wounds took place in their home mm -hmm. in dysfunctional relationships or families so we who have families and marriages that are centered on Jesus not perfect but you know it's a place where the kingdom dwells it's just, you know, evangelization can be having somebody for supper. That's it. Spending time on the couch. That's it. Yes, it needs to lead to something, the proclamation, the Craigman, all those things. But the starting point is not catechism memory or, you know, a big theological treatise. It's just loving people. And that's the heart of the Father. And that's what Jesus' heart came, you know, right into Samaria, right to the place of shame, the well at noon. That's that's who the Father is. That's who Jesus manifested for us. That's what our great opportunity is. Just start with that. Start with this inflamed love for people. And we can all have that. 
that's not a, you know special theological degree. Wow, I couldn't have said that better. I mean, you just nailed it. So, if if we want to really be effective, first and foremost, we've got to get in front of the Lord, and we've got to be spending time with Him. Mm-hmm. You know, as a as a bishop, I try to spend an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament minimum every day. Mm. And not, not praying my rosary or anything, just being in front of him and saying, Lord, I can't do it, but you can do it. Speaking of Father Bedard again, I mean, I received this Thank you for doing him. that, Bishop yeah. Scott. No, I mean it. I don't thank always you. succeed, so I don't want to give false impressions here. perfect. But, uh, no, but thank you for doing that. But That's once again, wonderful. I received this from my own mentor yeah. and my spiritual father in Christ, Father Bob Bedard, because mm-hmm. I saw him day after day after day. The first thing he would do is get into the chapel put his face on the floor in front of the Blessed Sacrament and say, not ready, Lord, but willing. And then spend time before the beloved, spend time before the Lord and let Mm. his heart be captured Mm. again and again and again. Mm. This is where evangelization begins and where it ends. Mm. This is where we want to bring people to. And love is creative. When you love people and they know it, their hearts open. It's a good segue to... um, the second part of the question you asked, which is, I was asked by the Ontario bishops to have a look at the Pew uh, surveys and a few other mm-hmm. of the major surveys that have been done about what is going on right now in terms of, you know, in terms of the church and in terms of numbers, in terms of who's leaving and when and why and what's succeeding. I'll skip a lot of that because we're pretty familiar with the bad news. Mm. But what eventually came out, what essentially came out is effective evangelization requires three distinct things. Mm. And the research seems to suggest that if even one of those three is missing, it's going to falter or maybe even fail altogether. I'll take them in order here. And the first is, uh, the first is welcome. Um, what we would now call in, in theological language pastoral accompaniment or hospitality. When people know that they are loved, that they, someone cares for them, that someone notices when they're there and when they're not there, when someone takes an interest in their lives, genuinely takes an interest in their lives, their hearts tend to open to the message that they're bringing. Authenticity opens hearts. Love opens hearts. And this is something that Pope Francis has been stressing in his own contribution to the church's understanding of evangelization, mm-hmm. is this pastoral accompaniment. Now I, now, I know some people use it and sort of, well, we just befriend, befriend people and that's all we have, you know. Um, well, if it's understood that way, then of course we have much to critique. But that's not what he was saying. That's not what he's saying. It's having the courage to get into the messiness of someone's life, to love them enough, to walk with them through the difficult moments, to help inform their conscience, to begin to teach them, to begin to show them the way, to be there when they fall and backslide and have to get up and get going again, to teach them how to love God, to love others, and to accept themselves, even in their brokenness and their failure. That's key. Mm. And without it, we don't tend to get any traction in evangelization. My understanding is even the great Billy Graham crusades that were, you know, you get 30,000 people in a stadium and, you know, uh, the majority would make a commitment to Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. One of the things they found after the fact is there was a very low retention rate. 
And it was because they hadn't created relationships. Mm -hmm. Now they knew and understood that. And so they changed their dynamics and got the local churches involved so that people had a connection, had a contact, had somewhere to go where people would care and love them. So this is love in action. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you rightly noted, it's not just about immediately jumping in and sharing the gospel message. Sometimes as uh, Sherry Waddell, you know, talks about so successfully, they need to learn to trust you and to trust someone who actually believes this. Uh, It's one of the reasons why the church's social outreach is also so important. It gives witness to the truth of what we proclaim. We don't just talk about loving people. We love people. Who do you find in the AIDS hospices taking care of people? Who do you find on the streets working with the poor? Who do you find doing outrage, uh, outreach to the, uh, to the prostitutes and to the people living on the streets? We need to be there and we are there. Mm-hmm. And it gives credibility to the message we, we proclaim. So this, uh, this love is absolutely crucial. Maybe just one last step or one last thing before I move on to step two is often we have the idea that if someone believes what we believe, okay, and they behave, then they're allowed to belong. Mm. Then you're welcome to come to the church. That is not how evangelization works. Now, that might have been something uh, potentially more appropriate in a time of Christendom when everybody knew the gospel message Mm -hmm. and was making decisions, etc., but that's not the case anymore. Now it's flipped on its head. If people belong and feel loved and known and cared about, their hearts begin to open to the message and they begin to believe. And then because they believe and they're loved, they begin to bring their life into order. Mm. And evangelization means we have to be able to love people in the messiness of their lives Mm. while they walk through that process. And that's hard. That's a commitment. That's not blow in, blow up and blow out again. That's walking with people. That's inviting them someone that your neighbors to Alpha and you go with them and you explain to them what's going on and you help them resolve the difficulties of their own conscience. And, and if you don't know the answer, you bring them to the people that do, mm-hmm. but you love them and walk with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing that they found was what I'll just call kerygma. And for those who don't know, kerygma is just a fancy Greek word, which essentially means the basic gospel message of God's love, of our separation from God through sin, God's saving action in destroying sin and reconciling us to himself in Jesus, and then living that out through the grace that God pours out on the world in the church and through the sacraments and walking as a, living as a disciple. That basic gospel message Here's the, ba- here's the bottom line. If people don't know why Jesus matters, they're not going to stick around. Mm-hmm. I got better things to do on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I, I got to watch the Vikings play. I got to watch the BC <laughs> Lions play. I got to watch the Canucks play. It's you getting know? close. Yeah. Um, people will find other things to do because we're not providing entertainment on Sunday mornings. We're, t- we're, at, we're providing an opportunity for people to be in communion with the living God. Mm-hmm. And if they don't understand why Jesus matters, they're not going to stick around. We need a charismatic revolution in the church. Mm-hmm. Even the majority of people sitting in our pews on a Sunday morning probably could not tell you the basic gospel message mm-hmm. and why Jesus matters for them personally. Mm-hmm. We have the problem in the Catholic Church of having a very rich 
and beautiful and developed theology. And so often we train our seminarians in that developed, beautiful theology, as we should. And they get into the pew and they start sharing that beautiful, developed, sophisticated, nuanced theology to people who don't know step number one. The analogy I like to use is too often in the Catholic Church, we're trying to build the building from the fifth floor down. Mm. You got to start with the foundation and build up. Mm. Uh, So that basic gospel message is absolutely key and critical. It has got to be a part of everything we do. Baptismal preparation, marriage preparation, uh, all sacramental preparation, all our catechesis. Once again, my great hero in the faith, Father Bedard, used to say, look, he gets to the kerygma message into every Sunday homily Mm -hmm. because there's going to be people sitting there who don't know it. And he was incredibly creative in finding ways to do that. So finally, the third thing, and I know I'm doing all the talking here, so I apologize. That's why you're here. Exactly. (laughs) People say that when Bishop Scott gets going, you don't look at your watch, you look at your calendar, right? I should have packed the lunch. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, But the third key piece Mm. is experience of God. Being loved by people, knowing why Jesus matters, absolutely critical. But then it comes down to a, an encounter with God yourself. And that can happen in so many different ways. Now, someone who came up and through the charismatic renewal, I have a certain bias towards the old Life in the Spirit seminar and the baptism in the Holy Spirit that mm-hmm. lights people up. But there are a lot of other ways. People experience Christ in Eucharistic adoration. Mm-hmm. Something happens there. Beautiful worship. Prayer. Simple prayer. How many people who have, who have asked or been asked if they want prayer and you simply say a short prayer with them and they experience something? You know, the Lord is alive. He's real. He can be trusted. And so we have to create opportunities for people to have an encounter with the Lord, to know who he is and know why he matters, yes, to feel loved and welcomed, absolutely. But all of that is pointing towards a deeper relationship with the Lord himself, Mm. not in theory, but Mm. in reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. Amen. (laughs) Great big amen. I love that. I love so many things about that. I think, you know, some of the first things you were talking about was being willing to go with people Mm. like down to the depths you know, to not keep surface level. Um, my husband, Jake, and I often joke about how you go to mass and outside in the foyer, people would be like, how are you? And we're like, great, good, busy, but good, you know, and really that's not, that's not what's going on. You know, there's a whole bunch of layers of pain and sorrow and mm-hmm. difficulty and joy, you know, that, that are happening simultaneously. And that's everybody who's standing in that foyer. And that may not be the place to go down to the depths, but I think we need to be willing to go there with each other, to make time and space outside. If that's not the place to do it, to make time time and space. And I don't think we do a good job at that always. Mm. Or if we do, we don't see how relevant it is. And that's what you're you're saying. This is actually vitally important to the life of any Christian and a disciple and someone who we are desiring to come into communion with God, is that we're willing to be in relationship. Our parishes mm. should not be impersonal, lonely places. Mm. And too often they are. Like sitting in the same Right beside the same person for 15 years of daily communion and not knowing their name, something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. And um, 
There's a certain, you know, I have a, a certain tolerance for the idea of people wanting to go to Mass and be silent and be before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, there really uh, is a place for that as well. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I get that. I understand that. Most of our parish situations were designed, or the way we do parish was designed in a time of Christendom when people had nuclear families that believed. Mm-hmm. There were places for deep, sh- intimate sharing. There were mm-hmm. mechanisms built in already mm-hmm. to our lives that allowed for that. Those are pretty much gone now. Yeah, there are exceptions, of course, and shining exceptions for sure. But our parishes now have to become places of encounter. Mm-hmm. And as you said, doing it in the foyer of the church isn't the right venue. Mm-hmm. But things like connect groups or small groups of disciples getting together mm-hmm. on a regular basis, uh, doing faith studies together or whatever, creating opportunities for us to really be invested and involved in each other's lives. Bear each other's burdens, St. Paul says. Mm-hmm. We should all be able to point to places and to people mm-hmm. where that's a reality in, in your life. Who's bearing your burdens when you're down and struggling? Mm-hmm. And whose burdens are you bearing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're living in an impersonal situation where you're just going to get your Sunday obligation done, that's not going to make it. Lone Ranger Christians will not make it in the world that is emerging, Mm. which is becoming less and less tolerant to our claims, you know, of who Jesus is and the response that we have to make to him. Mm -hmm. I like also what you were saying about acknowledging our own poverty before God. Like, uh, but many people use that as an excuse or something that's holding them back. You know, Brett, you were mm. referring to that of like actually being evangelists and going out there and sharing the gospel is like, I'm not equipped or I don't have what it takes. And, and the truth being, we, we don't, none of us do. And and that's, what's so beautiful is that we all are in need of a savior and we have one and we mm. can come to him. And there's a beautiful story of mother Teresa that I think about often where she was walking down the road and she saw this man who was just in, in terrible, in a terrible condition and laying on the street. And he was obviously starving and in need of a lot. And she didn't carry anything with her and her order didn't carry anything. So she had no food, no money, nothing. And she's in this moment questioning, I don't have anything, God, like, how could I not have anything to give him? And so she just went to him and said, I don't, I don't have anything to give you um, except Jesus. And she just hugged him. And this man just began to weep because Mm -hmm. no one had touched him Mm -hmm. in many years. And so even she was acknowledging her poverty. She didn't have everything to give to this man, yet she did. (laughs) because she had Jesus to give. And I think Mm -hmm. we underestimate how important the gift of presence is and that when we have a heart that is fallen in love with Jesus, that is enough to offer to another person, you know. I want to go back to the welcoming thing again, Father. I just think it's such an important part. And I forget the story that you shared, but it propped up this this, um, gospel story when... Jesus encountered the woman who, you know, cried and dropped on his feet and she dried him with his hair. And the the Pharisee that was sitting with them in that moment said, if this man knew, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is. And because Jesus was a prophet and knew exactly who this woman was, that's why he allowed it to happen. That's why he encountered her in that moment. And I, I just think that this 
And being animated by the heart of the Father who is out seeking is such an important part to this movement of Proclaim. Because if we go seeking converts, that's not going to go well. If we go seeking to preach a message because this world is going to hell in a handbasket, that's not going to go well. But it, can I say that in a podcast? I don't know. <laughs> or, or if we're completely dependent on a program. You or know? a program. Void exactly. of relationship and void of like being animated by yeah. the Spirit. Just put know? them through this program. Right. Just get them through Alpha. Get them through Discovery mm-hmm. or whatever. But it just has to be animated by, by the Father. You know, just talk some more about that. I uh, went on a mission to South Sudan. Mm. I think this is in 2006. That seems to ring a bell. Lent to 2006. And we went into a, uh, a village. Uh, the people were the Taposa people. Mm. And they were essentially living at just above what I would think is a Stone Age existence. You know, they lived in, yeah. in thatched huts and they survived on... Uh, bl- uh, blood from goats and uh, mm. meat from goats and th- they had a lot of cattle and the milk um, so a very primitive kind of life but this entire village was completely Catholic mm. every last person now that wasn't the true that wasn't the same in all the villages that surrounded us and uh, I eventually on one evening I was there giving a number of presentations and uh, I was asking uh, the chief you know why is it that this village is all Catholic and many of the other ones, uh, you know, hundreds of miles in different directions, aren't. And he told a story that has never left me. Um, He said when the Civil War began and the government army came down and was uh, killing and and moving through the countryside, uh, the missionaries were all called back. So all these missionary orders said, get out now. So they were obedient and they left. The group that was working with them were African sisters, uh, sisters of Mary, mother of the church, I believe was the name. And they said, well, going home means we stay. We're African. Uh, These are our people. And they said, you don't understand. People could be raped. Sisters could be killed. You could be treated very, very badly. And they said, well, these are our people and we're not leaving. And so they stayed. And some of those things unfortunately did happen. But they stayed and they loved not only the Taposa people when they got hurt, when they got wounded, but they also took care of the invaders when they got hurt, oh, wow. when they got shot. And they loved them too. And they took care of everybody. And they just poured out their lives in service. And um, so this chief says essentially what happened was they said, if this is what your Jesus turns people into, we want your Jesus. Wow. And a, an Italian priest was smuggled in and the whole village was baptized, you know. <laughs> wow. um, boy, it makes the point, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It just opens lives, opens hearts. When I was in a mission in uh, Ghana, the Gold Coast, and we would visit the parishes. And at first it kind of threw me because there was pictures of hundreds of pictures on the wall, black and white pictures of, of uh, um, priests, brothers, and sisters. And finally, at the second or third parish, I asked, what is all this, <laughs> you know? And they said that when missionaries first started coming from Europe to that place, their life expectancy was under two years. Yellow fever, meningitis, whatever other diseases there were, malaria. And it was so bad that they had to, some religious orders, they had to build their coffins in Europe and bring them with them. Oh my gosh. To this place. But these people 
knew it was worth their lives to preach a few homilies, to baptize a few people, to catechize, to share the love of God, to share the love of God with these people was worth their life. That's the kind of testimony that just opens hearts. And maybe our testimonies aren't so dramatic, but people notice, people notice when you pick up the phone and say, hey, I noticed you weren't at Sunday Mass. Are you okay? Do you want me to, are you sick? Do you want me to bring over some chicken noodle soup? You know, mm-hmm. that moves people when it's genuine. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. No, not at all. There's a story I'll share um, with this couple who, um, they were also quite involved in sports and that kind of thing. And they had, um, they had a knock at the door one day and this man showed up and his father had just taken very serious illness about to die and uh it it was this it was this son who was a dad to one of the you know players off this team and whatnot and knocking at the door and he he basically said look i don't don't know what i am saying i don't know what i'm thinking i just know that you have faith and my dad's in a bad spot and i just need to talk and it's it's that kind of thing where you just you live your life in a way and you love people and you accompany them and that opens the door you want to have assurance i'm going to tell you about jesus who came for this very situation there's power in knowing him christianity is useful because it's true he wants to bring you new life he wants to give you a hope and then all of a sudden those words mean something because it's you know on the heels of a lifetime of living this vocation of love for people in their life and it just flings open the door for the charisma for the gospel to come out in power but when we flip those around you know, thinking I've got a message to say and you need to hear it. It's just, it's too much salt. It's too much light. It's not attractive. It repulses people. You know what I mean? So anyways, I just want to enflesh that mm-hmm. story as an example. Yeah, I think it's important to, to remember that we might be the only, you know, witness of Jesus that someone might encounter, you know? And mm-hmm. so if we're able to bring his presence into the mess, then, I mean, that's where Jesus went. In all the scriptures that we read, mm-hmm. we see Jesus was right in the middle of the mess. Like he wasn't apart from it. In fact, he was touch putting his hands on the dead man. He was right next to the prostitute. And, and so this is our call as well to not be afraid of the messiness of people's lives, nor our, our own, yeah. you know, because that's right where Jesus is and wants to insert himself into the mess. So I think it's a beautiful opportunity for us to to stay little and to acknowledge we don't have what it takes, but but God mm-hmm. does. And Amen. that's what we're trying to bring to people. We're not bringing our own ideas, our own voice, like the great things we have to say. It's meaningless, essentially. Um, yeah. You talked about the third point, Bishop Scott, with experience of God mm. and just how important that is because... I mean, ultimately, Christianity is useful to this world as it always is because it's true. Right. Jesus came. He rose from the dead. He sends us Holy Spirit. He wants to be with us. He's in this room right now. He's right here all the time, you know, wants to accompany us and, and journey with us. And we th- we live in what is called post-Christian kind of culture, post-modernism and all that. And you've even referenced it. But what makes it <laughs> a Christian culture is not the things that we're trying to maintain or institutions and this and that. It's that encounter with Jesus Christ again. <clears throat> but we, we, we live in a place where the church has established so many things, so many institutions, Catholic health care, schools, you know, all kinds of buildings and, and all that, um, 
those are really hard to maintain. And what is the spirit doing in relation to those or in a new way? Like where, what is the, what is the spirit saying to the church right now? Yeah, it's a complicated question. Um, most of these structures that we built up over many, many generations, they had their place and they were important. We were creating Christian culture. We were creating an environment that breathed gospel, you know, uh, that people would be evangelized as youth. They would be catechized. And then they would ha- we would have the institutions in which and through which they could live out their faith. Absolutely critical and important. In a post-Christian culture with Christendom gone, now we have a dilemma. We have huge institutions that are very, very expensive to run, and yet our primary mission of making sure people are reconciled to the Father through Jesus sometimes doesn't have the resources that it needs to get the job done. And so this is what I mean when I say we have to retool and reprioritize and understand ourselves again to situate ourselves within this place in history, recognize where we're at, and then again make a move. You know, uh, I'm the I'm the bishop of the military, so it would be wrong for me to go through an entire podcast without talking some strategy, right? Uh, <laughs> but literally, we need we need to take the the bird's eye strategy view. Where are we at this moment in history, and what is our call at this time? Where do we put our priorities? We can never, as authentic Christians, you know, deny the social gospel and the need to care for the sick and the need to take care of the poor. Absolutely, we need to do those things. But we can't do them at the expense of our primary mission of bringing the good news to the world. We have to do both and, not either or. How we do that is often a very difficult decision. Um, but it's necessary. You know, we have to change with the terrain. I think Sun Tzu said that in The Art of War, right? We, uh, good, good, uh, good armies have to adapt to the circumstances the way the water adapts to the ground. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So too. Thing, it, it's not 1950. Right. It's not 1980. Yeah. It's not even 2000. <laughs> Things change. Things are moving at a rapid pace. Culture is moving. Culture is changing. Um, we've got to constantly look at the way we're carrying out our mission so that we can do it effectively. Yeah. You said something, you said it twice, and I want to give you an opportunity to explain it because somebody who hears that might be almost scandalized by it, but Mm. I want you to explain it. Christendom is gone. Christendom is dead. So explain what you mean. Christendom really was a system that dominated Europe for a very long time, probably a thousand years, where it was presumed, essentially, that everyone was baptized and believing. It was a Christian society based on Christian values. Our our moral codes, our legal codes, they all flowed from divine revelation. It is what I would call the era of faith, Mm -hmm. which means what? It means that we look to God's revelation, divine revelation, to find out who we are, what, what our life is about, what society is about, and what our ethics should be. Mm. Then we used our reason to understand that and our will to apply it. Mm. So this age of faith was the age of Christendom. You know, uh, that was the accepted way of understanding. And if we ran into challenges, what did we do? We go back to divine revelation to pierce, to understand it more deeply using our reason, and then use our will to apply it. Really what happened 
the beginning of the end for the for Christendom was the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Now, please don't misunderstand me. There were as many aspects of the Enlightenment which, which were good and which were positive, and the Church acknowledges that. But one of the less positive things was it removed revelation as a source of knowledge mm. about who we are, about what society should be, about what is right and wrong. So now what you have is reason. So reason is going to tell us those things and then use our will to apply it. Okay. Well, in those situations, people can come to different conclusions. Mm. And so that we, then we get the notion of secularity, right? So true secularity rather than secularism means that uh, my, my conscience and my fervent beliefs will be respected. I must respect yours and you must respect mine. Mm. I might fervently disagree with you, but I'm going to defend your right to say it, mm. <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a society that's based on that. Well, it's no longer run and governed by Christian ideals necessarily, although mm-hmm. most of our moral codes and whatever have a Judeo-Christian heritage, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so society is, is no longer Christendom. It's no longer run as a Christian society. Mm-hmm. It's now a liberal democracy, in which, it, which is multi-faith and multi-denominational, and uh, everyone has a place at the table. It's a little bit scary that we're now living in a time where the age of reason mm. seems to be replaced now by the era of the will or voluntism. Mm. You know, it's no longer about using our will to, or our reason to find out what's true and then our will to live it. It's about what I want to be true is true. Right. And if you don't acknowledge that, then you're offending my human dignity. Mm-hmm. That is a very dangerous state of affairs and it's a very worrisome mm-hmm. trend but it's one that as people of faith that's the milieu in which we live and work and carry out the mission of jesus mm-hmm. and yeah. we need to understand it and it, we do need to understand it. if we knew that the church is no longer the trusted lighthouse that it once was for society it would change the way we interact with the world mm-hmm. it it has to right yes because we can no longer just default to that or defer to that we have to go back to the very beginning and almost earn the right to be heard again. And that can't happen, I don't think, necessarily as an institution. We have mm-hmm. to make the institutional defenses. Yeah. We have to tell people what we've done to respond to, you know, uh, abuse crises and other things. We've mm-hmm. got to be genuine. We've got to be um, honest and open. But really what's going to win people's hearts is when they see real Christians in the trenches, in their lives, mm-hmm. living the faith with joy, with mm-hmm. hope. That, that, that see a purpose in their lives no matter what is going on in this world because yeah. they're living for another world. Mm. They're living for something greater. Mm. We're not otherworldly, mm. but we know that there is something there that awaits us. Mm. We have our feet on the ground, but yes, we do see more and we're working towards it, moving towards it. And we see people's human dignity and we respect it and we love them, whether they agree, agree with us or not. Mm. This is the great task Jesus laid on us. Love your enemies. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. No human being is our enemy in this world. Mm. We might feel they've been captured by an ideology which is false, etc. But God loved them too. Mm. And Jesus died for them too. And I'm willing to die for them too, even though they're putting me to death, even mm-hmm. though they're persecuting me. Yeah. That's, That's really interesting. Go ahead, Heather. Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, I think often it puts us in a situation the way that the culture works now that you you have to agree with me 
if you want to love me. You know, if, if I'm going to be loved by you, then you have to agree with everything I say. And there's some dynamics that it causes, you know, especially for those who are in evangelization where it's like, well, I just feel like I need to speak the truth. So I'm just going to speak the truth, um, mm -hmm. usually on social media, because I don't want to get too close because I don't want to get into an argument. So people will blast out the, the truth on social media or from a distance, you know, and I, I think what it's going to take, again, it goes back to relationship, like really being willing to have hard conversations in love around tables, around dinner tables, like out for coffee with people who, who may not share the same values as us and may not, may not share the same lifestyle as us. But the only way to truly love is in relationship and not from a distance. The scriptures say Christ came in grace and in truth, and mm -hmm. those things have to be held in balance. Truth without charity becomes a weapon mm. to beat people with. Mm -hmm. Charity without truth becomes mere sentimentalism. That's right. We need them both, mm. you know, right. and uh, it's absolutely critical that we have them both. One of the things that I often tell people is um, that one of the biggest turnoffs that I've ever seen is angry Christians. Mm. I'm angry that Christendom is gone. I'm angry that they took away this or that or the other thing. I'm angry that the church isn't what it used to be in such and such an mm -hmm. era. Take your choice. Um, that's not attractive. Where's the hope? Mm -hmm. You want to convince me that what you're about is, is truly a move of the Holy Spirit? Show me the joy. Mm -hmm. Show me what St. Ignatius calls the courage, that something comes alive inside of you and gives you energy and joy as you carry out this mission. Um, those are signs of the authenticity of the movement, mm -hmm. and uh, they're they're absolutely critically important. We've got to be people of light if we expect people to believe who we are. Mm -hmm. You know, who was it that said? Um, oh, I think it was uh, Frederick Nietzsche. You know, famous nihilist. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be more inclined to believe. Uh, <laughs> I'd be more inclined to believe in uh, Christianity if if I ever met one that actually lived it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget the exact quote, but that was. Uh, Mm. But it's so true. Think. I mean, I think that that is the way forward for the church now is to truly live it like personal holiness, a personal commitment to Jesus and bringing that encounter with God to the world is going to be the way through, you know, I think this next stage that we're mm. in. Truth and charity. We need them both. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You know, when we talk about, uh, about accompaniment, mm. I think the two mistakes that are made is. Um, some people say, well, you have to meet these very narrow criteria in order to belong here. Mm -hmm. And if you don't meet up with our standards, then you're not allowed in. Well, that's, sorry, that's not Christianity. Mm. Okay. Another group would say, you know, everybody's welcome. You're okay. I'm okay. Everything's mm -hmm. okay. If you leave people where they're at, then you're not serving, you're not serving them. You're not helping mm. them. Mm. The correct way of understanding it everybody's welcome, mm -hmm. but we're going to slowly bring you into this encounter with Jesus mm -hmm. and make him, make you a disciple, help you to become a disciple of him where you incarnate his life, his, his, uh, his teachings into your own life and experience the joy that he promises no matter how bad things are around us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said just about reconciling to the father. If we lose sight of that mm -hmm. as the mission, you know, uh, then, then we're, yeah, we're off base probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here we have this movement, Bishop Scott, <laughs> proclaim. People are excited about it, enthused and, and going, but some are still very concerned, timid, whatever. What might you say to somebody who's 
you know, just battling a real authentic nervousness or just concern. Maybe they've never really done anything like this. They've never wanted to go out for coffee, maybe as a start of a relationship that could lead to something. What would you say to somebody just, just beginning to move into that space? Well, I would remind them that it's not their mission. Mm. It's God's mission. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're authentically loving people, you can't fail. Mm. You may not have all the answers. You may not do it perfectly, but you can't fail. Mm. Love people. And uh, love covers a multitude of sins, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and trust the Lord. Trust him. Mm-hmm. Trust him to take the lead. Trust him to put the people on your path that you can actually authentically help. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what did someone say once? Uh, when you're trying to, trying to do, break into new territory that you've never been before, the most important thing is that you actually begin. Because mm-hmm. then you learn. And you learn and you grow and you get better and you keep moving ahead, you know. Um, I love that quote that you use often on uh, your own pod- podcast, you know, from uh, from Roosevelt about, you know, it's not the critic who stands back and that, that matters in the end. It's the person in the ring who's trying, who's trying and failing maybe because there's no, there's no great victories without effort. And... Uh, but as I say, I think it's got to start from that place of, of being uh, invaded and captured by the love of God, you know? It's, uh, I forget who said it, but many things that we try in life will fail, but what we do in love will never fail because love never fails, right? Yeah, this is something that St. Therese of Lisieux reminded the church and brought us back to, you know, that uh, nothing offered in love is lost. Ever. And anything that we do in love is going to have eternal value. You can convert the nations, but if it's done without love, it's not going to resound in eternity. You know, but she says, I can save a soul by picking up a pin from the floor out of love for God. So, you know, maybe your, da- your daily duties look like I'm, I'm washing diapers and washing dishes and, and cleaning house and, and running errands and this does not feel like the kingdom of God is invading here and what am I doing? Well, I would say you do those things with love. You're creating a school of love in the house, in the home, in the family, which is an icon of God's own love in the world. And it will open doors too. God will open doors. You'll find other people who are in similar situations with whom you find a way to do a faith study or you have coffee together or whatever. You know, uh, love, love it. There's nothing more creative in the world than love. Mm-hmm. And if we're authentically loving it, it just has a way of opening doors. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually really important that you touch on, you know, the different stages that people might find themselves in just states of life. You know, some people mm-hmm. listening might be a student, somebody's working, somebody's married, somebody has little people and feel trapped at home. You know, what can I do, you know, now? And I think we all have a part to play, whether it be through intercession, but even a phone call, you know, and, and maybe that phone call is to that mom who has been at home for maybe far too long with little people and, and needs to hear just the voice of a friend. I think there's always something we can do. And um, I think it's important that we pray. And ask God, like, mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, like, who do you want me to reach out to? Who do you want me to call? Who can I make myself of a gift to today? And in what small ways can I do that? I am a great promoter of what is called the uh, charisms inventory. Mm. Uh, St. Paul makes it very clear that some manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone. If you've been baptized, God has given you charisms. Mm. 
for the upbuilding of the church. This is a different category than the gifts of confirmation, the Isaiah gifts. Mm -hmm. These are gifts for ministry. These are gifts that God has given you and has empowered you to do for the upbuilding of the church. And everyone has them. Mm -hmm. And it's important to find out what they are because they tell you how God wants to use you. Mm -hmm. If you've got charisms of hospitality, wow, that tells you something right now. Mm -hmm. If you have a charism of teaching, there's ways you can exercise that. Charisms of mercy. Uh, you know, um, I think it's really key that every disciple is able to identify. Here's the charisms that God's given me. And this is, you know, and now he will open the door for me to use them. So I, I think an important part of understanding and getting involved in the mission of the church is identifying and understanding the charisms that God has given us because they tell us what he wants us to do. Yeah. Amen. That's I'm sure when you did your research for the Ontario bishops, you know, exploring different places and things where the new evangelization is really thriving. I think, in, at least from my experience, all the the communities that are really making headway, if you will, they have some aspect of self awareness, whether it's St. Catherine of Siena Institute, their charisms, or even the Strengths Finder, or different things mm. that allow people to understand themselves, so that yeah, they're they're not like. David putting on Saul's armor to get into evangelization because this is what they think evangelization is. No, it's just living out your, living out your charism. Yeah, you know. And there's uh, concrete benefits mm. to understanding your charism, um, because the way you decide or the way you discern if you really do have a charism is a threefold discernment. Number one is um, it works. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a charism of intercession, things actually happen. God's acting through you and he's mm -hmm. moving through you in a very profound way. Mm -hmm. Number two, something wakes up inside of you, comes mm -hmm. alive in you. It gives you a joy and a courage to overcome obstacles. Your head pops off the pillow in the morning and you're ready to get at it. You tend not to burn out as much because there's just an energy there. Mm -hmm. It's the Holy Spirit is moving. And the third is you tend not to have to convince anybody. They find you. Mm. They find you. Mm. People who have a charism of counsel, they just seem to attract people that mm -hmm. want to know, they want to ask you questions, they want to understand. Yeah. Uh, so when you're working in the charism that God has anointed you with, boy, there's such a joy, there's such a, mm -hmm. uh, such a good place that you can be in. There's an ease to it. Yeah. Like, I think we all struggle with burnout at different points, but I think, I know for me, when I'm really working in my lane, like in my charisms, there's an ease to it. I might yeah. be tired at the end of the day, but mm -hmm. I feel a sense of like, wow, this is, this was easy, you know, in a sense, like this is what I'm made to do. So for me, retreat ministry or evangelization, I come alive when I'm in those settings. When a retreat's starting, I'm like, oh, this is the easy part now. You know, we're done all the logistics. <laughs> like, no, this mm -hmm. is good. And I think that's a good way a good question for many people to ask just a really practical thing mm -hmm. we're talking about a lot of different things today but a practical thing to ask yourself where do you feel at ease how do you come alive the three yeah. things that you mentioned that's a great inventory for us to take and then to look for where's the space that i can offer mm -hmm. those gifts and charisms amen one of the images i love is if you've ever seen a sheep dog the first time it sees sheep it's eyes oh, yeah. flash. It comes alive. Mm -hmm. It knows why it was created, you know, and it, it doesn't need to be taught. It's just, it goes, it, oh. it's just there. Um, that's, that's my experience with charisms and seeing people working in their charisms. Mm -hmm. Just what a difference it makes. That's beautiful. I'm not sure what your 
uh, inventory would show, but obviously prophetic would be, I think, one of the charisms. <laughs> you have been such a, a blessing, Bishop Scott, to so many people, to me personally, in our friendship, but in your ministry as a priest, as a bishop, as a prophet, as an evangelist. And it's been a real treat just to have you on uh, this podcast. I'm sure it's going to be a blessing to many people. So thank you very much uh, for coming. The joy has been all mine, and I hope uh, some of this is helpful to you. And uh, I impart my blessing to you and uh, assure you of my prayers. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, or leave a review. We'd love to hear what you think.